Good morning. My name is Chauncey. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Matthew, and the New Testament reading is found in Galatians 3, 10 and 11, and 13 and 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Amber, and thank you for standing for the gospel reading. Today it's found in Luke Chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And plant your feet firmly. This is not a short passage. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to be one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself... He said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and felt compassion, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead." And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord. Remain standing as we pray. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would see Jesus. Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear Jesus. And open our hearts, Lord, that we would love and serve and follow Jesus. To the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There are two ways to die. There are two ways to die, but there's really only one way to live. But dying is a thing that we're very much afraid of in our world. We're a culture that does everything that we can to avoid death, speaking about death, thinking about death, being aware of the dying. We'd rather not hear it or see it or know it. It used to be in traditional churches that in order to come into the church's courtyard, you'd have to walk through a cemetery. You'd have to walk around gravestones and tombstones that maybe had been there for decades or centuries. Now we sort of think that's a little bit eerie. But originally the thought behind it was to say, look, all of the saints who have gone before us are waiting with expectant hope for the resurrection of the dead. And so this, the reminder of even those who had died was, a, was something that led us toward hope. But now, in our culture, we're afraid of death. And so we'd like to set the cemeteries on the edges of town because we'd rather not think about it. We'd rather let the heart of a city be all about its commerce and its life and its, acti- its activity and its fun and its entertainment and its art and its culture Now, I'm not advocating a change in city planning, but I'm highlighting this fear of death. On the flip side, there is this great straining and striving towards life. We, We thirst for life and maybe, in a sense, immortality. Immortality is not a word that we throw around a lot at parties or at discussions or at meals with friends, but immortality has been a quest for humanity for many, many centuries. In fact, they used to bury the dead in their tombs with great treasures and wealth around them. As They used to embalm them with these spices as a way of saying, look, let's preserve this because, hey, we know that the, their time while they were breathing and alive was short or may have been not as long as we had hoped, but really their life and their glory and their legacy goes on and on and on and on. This was the ancient's way of speaking about the thirst for immortality. We have our version of it. Our version of it is the obsession with youth, the obsession with being young and being alive and being full of strength and vitality. And so we do everything we can to look young, be young, act young. We don't want to dress too old because we don't want to be confused for someone older than we are. We want to look constantly younger. The focus of culture is to set aside the aging and to obsess over the, the young. This is our way of avoiding death and chasing immortality. 
people have talked about, sociologists have talked about how humans have immortality symbols, symbols that speak to us about our ability to transcend death. Money, wealth, is one of the oldest immortality symbols. The way of amassing and accumulating these things and property and land and wealth as a way of saying, look, I'll go on forever. Power is another immortality symbol. This is why there are great monuments, maybe statues that were built to ancient rulers, ways of saying, look at this power, look at this, you name a city after a person, Alexandria, a way of saying, look at this once great ruler, you look at the power that goes on and on and on. Power is an immortality symbol. And sex itself was one of the other great ancient immortality symbols. This is why rulers surrounded themselves with harems or things like that as a way of saying, look how, how much virility, look how much power, look how much uh, um, life is within this person. It may look differently, but for thousands of years, we've been trying to escape death and attain life. To escape death and to attain life. But the question is, how? How? There are two ways to die, but only one way to live. The word religion can mean a lot of good things. The word religion can be a way to speak about an organized, codified set of beliefs so that we can pass it on. The creed that we said this morning can be part of what we might think of when we say religion. The fact that the followers of Jesus decided to write these things down, that they might pass on the faith. The fact that we are Christians today is because there's been a sense of organizing and articulating and passing on. We can use the word religion to speak about that, but usually that's not what we mean. Usually when we hear the word religion or say the word religion, we're thinking of something else. We're thinking of self-effort. We're thinking of the, the, the power and the ability and the strength within ourselves to reach God. One of the great theologians compared religion to that story in the Bible of building the Tower of Babel. Religion is a monument to humans' attempts, humanity's attempt to reach God. Religion is the monument to humanity's attempt to scale the heavens and say, yes, no one can stop us. Religion in that sense never really lives up to its promise. Because no matter how high you build that building, you haven't yet touched the sky. You haven't yet attained it. You haven't yet reached it. But religion has been one way to say how, how we can escape death and attain life. The other way is maybe a word that we're equally uncomfortable with, and it's the word rebellion. Rebellion sort of says, oh, look, I, I'm not going to try to sort of scale and reach the heavens and build something great and reach God or impress God. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, forget it. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? Just enjoy life now. Eat, drink, be merry. Who knows what's coming? We're beginning a series next week through the book of Ecclesiastes, which gives voice to so much of our cynicism about joy. 
The rebellion paradigm says, you know what? I, I don't know. I don't know about this God stuff. I don't know about this church stuff. I don't even know about eternal life or any other life. All I know is what I got right now. So brother, get it while you can. You go, girl. This is your day. <laughs> I don't know what's coming, but this is what you got. So go for it. Enjoy yourself. Religion says, behave, be good. Rebellion says, enjoy life. Who cares? The Greeks had a version of this that were basically split in two camps. You had the Stoics who denied themselves every pleasure in the hope that they could attain life immortal. And then you had the Epicureans who did not deny themselves any pleasure because they said, who cares what the body does? The soul is all that matters. See, we've been trying to find ways to escape death and attain life. But there are two ways to die and only one way to live. Jesus told a story very much like this. It's the story that we heard in our gospel reading this morning. A story of a father with two sons. And it's this, it begins with this younger son saying to his father, give me my inheritance now because I've got to go, which in Jewish culture was tantamount to saying, dad, I wish you were dead. Because I'd rather you get out of the way and let youth have its day. Give me what's mine. It's my turn now. And this brother goes, and to add insult to that already terrible thing that he's done, he squanders this money on, on, on living that is vile in every way, particularly to Jewish ears as they're hearing this story. This is a story in one sense that is really about Israel and the Gentiles. The preface to the story is, is Jesus being asked why he's hanging out with sinners. And he's being asked this by Jewish religious leaders. So this story comes as the third story in a set of three stories that Jesus tells. And it's really about Israel and the Gentiles. Maybe you've never thought about that or heard that before. But the older son is meant to represent Israel. Why? Because who's the firstborn? The firstborn is the heir. The firstborn is the chosen. The firstborn is, is blessed, right? According to these old customs. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, Israel, you think you're hot stuff. You're the covenant people. You're proud of the fact that your father is Abraham. You're proud of the fact that you can trace your lineage. You're proud of the fact that you observe Sabbath and that you do all these things. But guess what? You're the older brother. And the Gentiles are like the younger brother. The Gentiles are the ones who have left the house a long time ago. They were the unchosen and for obvious reasons, right, to a Jewish mind. Jesus starts to tell this story that begins to confront them. But this isn't just a story about Israel and the Gentiles. This is a story about the whole human race. The great storyteller of the Old Testament, Moses, told a story of how the world began. And he told a story about a garden and about two trees. And Adam was set in this garden to tend it, to work it, to keep it. And to eat out of any tree except this one. And this one was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they said, look, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. There are two ways to die. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Couldn't we say that in a sense all of humanity has been chasing the knowledge of good? To say, yeah, I just tell me all the rules 
Tell me the rules, pastor, and I'll follow them so that I can, where are the boxes to check? I want the knowledge of all that is good. Or there's the knowledge of evil that says, you know what, I, I don't know, you call it evil, I call it fun. This is great. I'm going for it. I'm doing everything I can. But right away in the very beginning of our scriptures is a story that says, chasing the knowledge of good and chasing the knowledge of evil. There are two ways to die, religion and rebellion. Neither fruit came from the tree of life. Neither fruit came from the tree of life. Chase it all you want, the knowledge of good. Chase the knowledge of evil, firsthand knowledge of evil. Chase it all you want. Both fruit lead to death. But if we were to say, okay, it's a story of Israel and the Gentiles. No, zoom out. It's a story of the whole human race. No, let's zoom back in. A little closer in. All the way in. All of a sudden you say, this is a story about you. This is a story about me. Which are you? Which, which brother am I? We're both. Are we not sometimes the older brother proud of our achievement and self-effort and good behavior and the fruit of our lives and look at my good choices and look at my family and look at my children. Look at, aren't we sometimes that person? And aren't we sometimes the one that just wants to run away and say, forget all of this. This, this stinks. I don't, want to, I don't want anybody telling me what to, I, I want my own life. It's my life. This is a story about you and me because we are both brothers. You know, Jesus is a marvelous storyteller. Not just a marvelous storyteller, but he has a way of sticking the knife in and twisting it at just the right moment. <laughs> so this story is the third of three stories that he tells. The first story is about a shepherd with a hundred sheep and one gets lost and so he leaves the 99 and chases the one. Can we do a little bit of math on Easter Sunday? Would that be okay? One's lost. The shepherd goes after the one that's lost. One out of 100. What percent is that? 1%. You're doing great, guys. There are only three questions on this test. The next story is about a woman with 10 coins. One coin is lost, and she begins to search, tear up everything to search for this one coin. Now what percent is that? 10%. You're doing good. You weren't sure, but you're, that's, you're right there. <laughs> Had to think about it. Then he tells a story about two sons. And when you start out listening to the story, you're convinced. You're like, okay, okay, well, the, one out of two went bad. What percent is that? 50. Good job. <laughs> now imagine that you're there that day. Imagine that you're there, and you're so irate about Jesus hanging out with sinners, and, you, and you're listening to him tell these stories, and he's sort of blubbering on, and you're, Jesus, what are you talking about? And his first story about a hundred sheep, and it's one that's lost out of a hundred, you're thinking, come on, I'm not that one. Clearly, I'm with the 99. In fact, the odds would say I'm with the 99. Come on. I'm not bothered by your silly story about sheep. Then he goes on, he tells a story about the coins, and you're like, one out of ten, huh? Ten percent. Yeah, but you know what? I, I'm, I'm not the lost coin. I'm one of the nine. I'm good. I'm in the 90th percentile. And then he tells a story about two sons, and you're like, one out of two. You're starting to feel a little heat under your collar, sweating a little bit. 
One out of two, sure, but listen to the story about that guy. I'm not that guy. It's, isn't it obvious? I go to, I go to the temple. I do this stuff. I, 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 I'm not that guy. One out of two, sure, but it's not me. But do you know an interesting thing? How do each of the earlier two stories end? They end with the person going out to seek the lost, right? The shepherd goes out to find the one that was lost. The woman searches her house to find the coin that was lost. But when the, Jesus is telling the story about the, the younger brother, the father doesn't leave the house to find the younger brother, does he? He doesn't. It takes a while. The younger brother runs and the father doesn't leave. In fact, that's not even where the story ends. The story ends with the older brother leaving the house and refusing to come in. And he's the one the father goes out for. Now, it doesn't take a literary genius to spot the parallels in the stories. So you're saying he went out for the lost sheep, she went out to search for the lost coin, and the father goes out to the older brother? Wait a minute, Jesus, oh wait, I, I, see, I thought, are, you, are you saying I'm lost? Right. Twist. So, so back to our math game, from 1% to 10% to 50% to 100%. Both sons are lost. There are two ways to die. One through rebellion, sure, but the other through religion. What shall we do? What shall we do? What can be done for us? Could you imagine if we set two people up here today? I mean, this is Easter Sunday. You look marvelous. What if we had two women or two men? One was in their, you know, perfect Easter dress, or the man was in his lovely bow tie and navy blazer. <laughs> Looking good, exceptionally good. And then you have one who looks like what you might say is a mess. And you know, because you've, you've seen a person and then afterwards said to your friend or your spouse, they're kind of a mess. And you can fill in the blank of what that picture looks like. Maybe it's a physical thing. Maybe it's life choices. Maybe it's addictions. And you can say, oh, is that pretty? But now take Jesus out of the picture. Who's lost? Both are. Who's dead? Both are. You see, the gospel isn't about becoming a better person. It's about becoming alive again for the first time. It's about resurrection, people. It's about resurrection. This is why there's so much fear and angst right now as Americans because we're like, oh, I miss the days of the old morality and this new morality is so oppressive and all that. Listen, listen, you know what? Old morality, good morality, new morality, whatever, it's all dead. It's all dead. You could be the nicest neighbor with milk and cookies and have a, have a part and leave it to beaver. I mean, you, 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 could, you could fit right into the 50s and be dead. Because, friends, this Jesus thing isn't about who's bad and who's good, who's naughty and who's nice. This isn't Santa Claus stuff. It's about who's dead. And the gospel confronts us by saying, you're both dead. Oh, 
ouch. But then the story begins to turn. Then we, be, we can begin to see something else. See, the father does run out to meet the younger son when he's decided to come home. And he runs out to him, and it could be that he's running out to him because he's missed him and he's overjoyed. But it says in the scripture that he felt compassion. See, it's customary that in a Jewish village or community when someone has brought so much shame and so much dishonor, not only to his family, but to the community It's customary that when that person came back in, that the elders sitting at the city gates would be ready to stone him. And it could be that the father says, no, 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 no. He felt compassion because he realized, there's my son. Oh, oh, no. He's going to get to the entrance of the community, and they're going to kill him. And so the father does what no Jewish landowner would do to keep respect. He hikes up his robes. He says, you want to talk about shame? I'll give you some shame. I'll give you something to talk about. And he starts running. And he runs ahead because he's saying, okay, listen, if you're going to beat someone, you're going to beat me. If you're going to stone somebody, you're going to stone me. If you're going to throw out your punishment on somebody, let it be me. And I think Jesus is telling the story because Jesus is how God runs to us. Jesus knows it. He is how God the Father came running for us. Jesus is how God says, no, 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 they're headed for death. They're headed for destruction, either through their human attempts to reach me called religion or their determinants to live their own life, their rebellion. But either way, they're headed for the cliff. No, 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 I'm coming. I'm coming. And the God of the ages takes on the ultimate humiliation by going to the cross and saying, if anyone's going to die, it's going to be me. I'll take it. I'll take it. Galatians says, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. You want to follow the law? Sure, but you got to follow all of it. Otherwise, there's a curse. And Paul's trying to say to us, Jesus Jesus was crucified on the cross, hanged on this tree to become the curse for us. And maybe the tree language is on purpose to make us think that the curse entered the world and the curse entered your life and the curse entered my life because of a tree, a tree that brought death. And yet it's another tree that Jesus dies on, becomes a curse on in order to bring us life. On the cross, Jesus takes upon himself the full weight of the curse, absorbing in himself the power of evil, the weight and the punishment of our sin, and dies and goes to the grave all the way down. If you were there at the Good Friday service, we ended in silence and darkness, so you'd feel it all the way down. And then on Easter morn, the Father said, Rise. Rise as a vindication over Jesus, but rise as an announcement to the world that all who call on his name shall not die, but live. Shall live. Shall live. Friends, because of Easter, the cross has become a tree of life for us. 
Because of Easter, the cross itself, I mean, think of it. How odd is it that for a couple thousand years, an instrument of horrific, grotesque death has become the symbol of our worship and adoration. How strange. Because the cursed cross has become the tree of life. Because of Easter. 1 Peter 1 Verses 3, this is what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know what? There's nothing wrong with your desire to escape death and attain life. The problem is you're not thinking deeply enough about it. See, Jesus said, you want to escape death? Great. But do not fear the one who can destroy body, but the one who can destroy both body and spirit. There is a worse death than our physical one. Our physical death, after all, is simply the embodiment of a spiritual separation But there is this life that comes. So Jesus says, you want life. You long for life. Great. But seek the true and immortal eternal life that comes from the only immortal God through whom we have access. Through Christ, we have access to this God. You want to escape death and attain life. Good. Escape the real death and gain the true life. And think of how Christians from that moment on, from the first Easter on until now, have not feared physical death. I think about these 148 in Kenya who were asked, are you a Christian? And if so, they knew it meant going to death. And these 148 have done what all these other Christians before them have done. We don't fear this physical death anymore. Because Paul wrote that the sting of death is sin. And if sin is taken away, then, oh, death, where is your sting? There is life now. There are two ways to die. But there's only one way to live. There's only one way to live. This morning, as you bow your heads, I want to invite you to Jesus The risen Jesus. Some of you are thinking this morning, Glenn, I don't, I don't have enough faith to kind of muster up to believe. I, I, I don't know. The risen Jesus is enough. It's the risen Jesus who finds Thomas and appears to him. He said, but, but, but what about my failure? What about the amount I've walked away? What about the habitual sin? What about the thing? What what about? It's the risen Jesus who appears to Peter. Peter, completely torn up about his failure and his denial of Christ. It's the risen Jesus who appears to him and calls him back and reinstates him. 
Friends, Easter is not about bringing life to yourself. Easter is about letting the risen Christ speak his life into you. Easter is about the risen Christ coming and saying, come on, live again. Live again. Leave your human attempts to reach me and please me. Leave your religion behind. And leave your rebellion behind. The shame of those mistakes, stains. And come, behold the risen Christ.